This week's episode of Discovering Trek is brought to you exclusively by Fansets. Later on in this episode, we're going to have a special discount offer just for Discovering Trek listeners. Discover a whole new universe of pin collectibles with Fansets online at fansets.com. A sphere, a blob, and a circle of life. Episode four of Star Trek Discovery shaped up to be one of the best yet with three very different, yet very Star Trek storylines. I think it's safe to say that while searching for Spock, this season of Discovery is returning to the roots of Starfleet with science, exploration, and boldly going. Let's reset our universal translators and dive into this very interesting episode right now. My name is Dan Davidson, and we are Discovering Trek. Welcome one and all to Discovering Trek, the Star Trek Discovery Companion, presented by Fansets. Episode 4 was yet another amazing addition to what has become an already stellar season, and I'm just amazed at how each week the writing seems to feed off the previous episodes and things just get better and better. We saw the return of a character we haven't seen in over 50 years, we were introduced to a strange yet new life form, and we saw the literal evolution of a beloved character. As always, this is the premier podcast for the most in-depth discussion and analysis about the latest episode of Star Trek Discovery, entitled An Abul for Charon, and we have a lot of storyline to cover. So at this time, I need to bring in my number one to help break it all down. You know, if I were facing death and needed him to sever my threat ganglia, I'm pretty sure he wouldn't hesitate for one split second. I guess that's just how much I can count on him. Anyway, as always, he's my very special friend, my brother in Trek, my knife-wielding friend, my amazing number one. He is Bill Smith. Bill, welcome aboard, buddy, and uh, lots to talk about, no matter what language may be coming out of your mouth at this moment. Konnichiwa. Thank you. <laughs> Aloha. <laughs> Good Anything morning. else? There you Good go. Morning, yeah. Hey, buddy, um, I don't think I'm smart enough to use a universal translator, but man, what an episode of, Dis- of Discovery this past week. Thanks for uh, for the great intro. It's so good to be back. And uh, man, this season just keeps getting better and better. I can't wait to dive in. I really am amazed at how great the storytelling has been right from the get-go in this season. Uh, just building off an incredible season one, I, I'm just so amazed at what's going on with Discovery. And what else is amazing is we have an amazing guest that's going to join us this week to talk about this episode four. So, Bill, why don't you tell us who that is, and uh, we'll welcome him right on and get started. Yeah, whatever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now he's uh he's the co-host of Polytrex on the tricorder transmissions network of podcasts he's our dear friend he's been on this podcast a couple of times before once sitting in my chair and did such a good job that people asked if he could stay permanently i'm not quite sure what to draw from that he's the uh, the lovely wise and talented barry deford and barry uh welcome back to discovering trek i think you're the first three time or more a, a puree on this year podcast I think that's actually true. So uh, yeah, I'm I'm really excited to be back. Of course, you guys had Shashank on on the first episode, my co-host at uh, Poltrex. So you've had the best. Now try the rest. <laughs> oh, I, I think we got the best right here in the entire podcast world, Barry. We're really uh, very happy that you're here. Thanks again for joining us. And you know, you know, now that you're here, we've we we do have a special announcement that we can now break to the world. It is a time to celebrate with the 
And it's not just a time for celebration, and we don't want anyone to die, but still, this is great. The, the Trek Geeks Network of Podcasts is very, very proud to announce that when the new Picard series debuts later this year, we're going to have a live companion show hosted by none other than this week's guest here on Discovering Trek, Barry DeFord himself. Barry, Bill and I are so thrilled about this. We've been talking about it for a while. There's a lot of excitement in the air here. So tell us a little bit about what you plan for this new Picard live action podcast. I, I am very honored and really excited to be getting the chance to host a unique look at uh, at the new Trek that we'll be getting in spades by about this time next year. So with JLP Live, I plan to be working through a live call-in slash like, comment-in podcast where I will administrate while we can, as a fan group, speculate, pontificate, elaborate, celebrate, and in Dan Kate's maybe in Dan's case, maybe frustrate the latest episode <laughs> of the Picard series when it releases. So I think this is like an NXS video. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> We'll we'll have some contest like things with like prizes. Uh, there may be like guests from time to time to contribute. I mean, obviously, with the Picard series itself in sort of pre production, so is this show. But uh, I want to see what kind of connections we can make between the new Picard series and the Picard we left behind uh, in Nemesis and Countdown. So this is still all very much in the planning uh, phase with Dan, uh, Bill. You guys have been really helpful in getting this up and off the ground. But I'm also open to suggestions from uh, fellow campers. On Camp Kittimer. So the definitely uh, this should be the conversation should begin now rather than the first episode we do. Without a doubt. I mean, we're incredibly excited. You know, Dan, I talked about this for a while. It's like we both enjoy being married quite a bit. And to add yet another podcast to our plate would uh, <laughs> would probably stretch the bounds of uh, of that you know reality. So uh, you were the first name that came to mind when we thought of you know who could who could chair a Picard podcast, and we were so grateful and elated when you agreed. Um, and I, I'm I know Dan agrees one hundred percent. Absolutely one hundred percent. It's it's uh, it's really amazing to see how not only has Star Trek evolved over the course of the last few years with Discovery and all of these no sh new shows that are coming out, but now be able to have this podcast network and bringing in people like yourself, Barry, to take uh, part in this journey and have a very unique show that we've been talking about and planning and everything is just fantastic. It is a great time to be a Star Trek fan, guys. No, it absolutely is. And just thinking about, you know, when I first uh, encountered your guys' show two years ago, we were talking about the potential of another series and that was it. And now two years down the road, we're, we're you can't shake a stick without hitting a new Star Trek idea, which I am super <laughs> excited about. I guess you couldn't shoot a phaser without hitting. Uh, Much better. Yeah, <laughs> see, see, he's... He's learning, Bill, so there's there's hope for him. <laughs> well, you know, there's there's so much promise here in the third Trek Geek that uh, you know it's it's exciting times. Well, guys, back to Discovery. This one had a lot of plot development and had possible ramifications for future episodes. And like I've said, we've got a lot to talk about. But before we do that, Bill, perhaps you can tell our listeners how they can get in touch with us to give us their thoughts on an Abu for Charon. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Hailing frequencies are open, Dan, and in whatever language your universal translator is broadcasting in today, 
On Twitter, we can be found at Discovering Trek. And on ye old book of faces, you can catch up to us at facebook.com slash discovering trek. In either place, you can become part of the conversation of the discussion, leave us comments, questions, or maybe even your favorite David Bowie song. Plus, you can also send us a voicemail by going to our website at trekgeeks.com and clicking on the giant blue button on the right-hand side. Please do remember, though, that any comments you may leave us could be used in a future episode of Discovering Trek. Dan. Thanks, Bill. I'll get the title right during one of these uh, things, I'm sure, because I'm I doubt it. not good at English <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Black alert. Black alert. From here on in, this episode of Discovering Trek contains spoilers, so if you haven't watched Season 2, Episode 4 of Star Trek Discovery, stop listening right now. Head on over to CBS All Access or wherever you watch Discovery, watch the latest episode, and then head back on over to Discovering Trek. Failure to do that puts you at risk to find out plot developments and character details for an abol to Charon. Previously on Star Trek Discovery. Spock, where you at? Captain Pike stands in the transporter room and gives the order to energize. Before him appears his first officer from the Starship Enterprise. Number one, as he refers to her, has come aboard to give him some info that she managed to get through, well, let's just say less than official channels, regarding the allegations against Spock. She just can't believe that Spock has murdered three doctors at the psychiatric facility on Starbase 5. Plus, Starfleet has classified his case Level 1, something pretty unprecedented for an officer aboard a starship. She's also uncovered some info that makes her doubt this investigation, and she slides a data pad across the table to Pike as he heads to a briefing. In the engineering lab, Tilly looks at the slime blob that is not May, you know, the eukaryotic organism that had infected her, Stamets was able to extract it last week, it's lying on the floor of the reaction cube. Stamets tells Tilly that it's one of the most sophisticated life forms he's ever encountered. Tilly's been wondering why it presented to her as May Ahern, and That's had her thinking about the real May, the one she knew in school. Tilly tells Stamets that she could have been a better friend, and Stamets tells her that he's sure she was a better friend than she thought. She always is. In the briefing room, the staff briefing is in progress, and they're talking about the Red Angel. The Universal Translator is having some issues translating Linus's clicks and pops, but it catches up to him. Hmm. I wonder why that was introduced. I'll bet it's nothing. Best to move on. While the discussion goes on, Saru is adding salt to his tea. Clearly, he's not feeling well. He's apparently fighting an acute rhinovirus, and, well, he looks like hell. Captain Pike observes the very same and orders him to get some rest, after telling Detmer to set a course at maximum warp to some coordinates he's just obtained from number one. Burnham asks for a word with Pike. She'd like to not be involved with the whole, wait for it, search for Spock, She doesn't want to make things worse for her brother, and Pike disagrees with her. He thinks that she's still the best person to try and reach him. The ship suddenly and rather unceremoniously drops out of warp, like they were grabbed by something. Pike orders shields up and calls red alert. Whatever it is that's grabbed them, it's way more powerful than a tractor beam. Owo is unable to raise the shields, and Burnham says that it's a multiphasic stasis field that's disrupting their shield harmonics. Discovery is locked into place like a fly in a web, and the spider is a giant glowing sphere. Pike, Linus, and Burnham go over the sphere's details. It's ancient, and apparently it melds organic and non-living matter. 
It's also roughly 100,000 years old. They're not sure if it's alive, but it is vibrating. Just then, Burnham starts speaking in Klingon, and Pike starts speaking French. Apparently, the whole crew is speaking all kinds of languages, Andorian, Italian, Welsh, Norwegian. The sphere seemed to respond to one of Discovery's hails, and the universal translator began to malfunction. They need the one crew member who speaks more languages than anyone else to help make sense of it. The ailing Saru stumbles onto the bridge. Apparently, a virus has invaded the translation system. Saru begins to configure consoles and manages to bring up the equivalent of a backup translator online. The consoles are still displaying different languages, but anyone who speaks Earth English on the bridge should be able to communicate now. The virus will continue to spread, and they have to purge it from the system. Burnham goes to do that, and Saru accompanies her to translate despite his ailment. Down in the engineering lab, Tilly reports to the bridge that they're unaffected by the virus down there. Commander Jet Reno enters the lab. She's there to reroute the plasma regulator. She and Stamets exchange sarcasm a lot. They don't get off on the right foot at all. She thinks that traveling the galaxy on mushrooms is absurd, and he thinks that she's a gearhead. This is going so well, isn't it? Burnham has isolated the communication system, and Saru begins to reinitialize it. She notifies the bridge that the UT is back online, and Saru collapses. He admits that what he has isn't really a cold, as the ship rocks. Back in the engineering lab, not only is the ship rocking, but it's shooting giga-electron bolts through the compartment, and the computer has isolated the lab to minimize the damage. There's still life support, but if the oxygen in the compartment ignites, they're all going to be incinerated. They need to channel the bolts into a de facto lightning rod using spore canisters. Burnham's able to make contact with the bridge. Turns out the sphere didn't fire on them, but EPS conduits are blowing all over the ship. Systems are going haywire and the virus is spreading. Saru says they have to get to the bridge, and Burnham's not going to have any of that. She takes him straight to sickbay. In the engineering lab, the lightning rod works, but there is a side effect. Not May has escaped the reaction cube and has latched on to Tilly, and she's not letting go. Burnham and Pike help Saru into sickbay. Pollard gives him the once-over. Saru is experiencing an amount of pain that would leave your average humanoid unconscious. Saru's threat ganglia make an appearance, and he says it's part of his... condition. He's been seeing flashes of ultraviolet light. They're invisible to everyone else, but they're causing him great pain. Saru then reveals that his condition is terminal. Uh, excuse me? He thought his discomfort was a passing cold, but it's not. The sphere appears to have triggered the Kelpian biological process known as the Vahari. It's the event that signals when his race is ready to be culled for the slaughter by the Ba'ul the predator species on Kaminar. The ganglia only inflame in this manner when the Kelpians are nearing their end. Burnham says they're not going to let Saru die, that there has to be something they can do. Saru says there isn't. Kelpians going through the Vahari either die in the culling or die from the madness that ensues. Death is inevitable. In the engineering lab, the mycelial entity formerly known as Not May is still attached to Tilly. Communications are still down across the ship, Stamets has Tilly in quarantine, and Tilly knows that May means her no harm as she rambles on for a bit. Stamets says that Tilly is under the influence of a psilocybin hallucinogen that is being secreted by the life form. Tilly's on a trip, maybe to calm her down, and maybe to keep her under control. Not sure which. Back in sickbay, Pike and Burnham theorize that maybe, if they can free the discovery from the pull of the sphere, the Vahari might stop for Saru. 
problem is, the virus continues to spread across the ship. Saru says that if they can slow the virus down, they can analyze it and develop digital antibodies that can help them break free. It's just going to be a slow process. Burnham heads to a science lab and Saru gets up to go with her. Pike tries to tell Saru that she's got this, but Saru says he may be dying, but he's not dead. In the science lab, the antibodies are in fact slowing the process of the virus. Burnham wonders why Saru would bear this alone. He explains that hiding is his nature. He asks a favor of her. He's kept personal logs since joining Starfleet. He asks her to officially catalog them so the Prime Directive no longer applies to Kelpians, so that they too can know a journey like his is possible, and she agrees. Burnham asks Saru if he kept a log of his life before Starfleet. Saru says his life began when he was granted refugee status by the Federation. He joined Starfleet to help others the way he was helped. Burnham tells Saru that he is the most empathic soul that she's ever known. Saru also tells her that there was just one painful caveat to his joining Starfleet. He can never go back home again. Saru experiences more sharp pain. The ultraviolet bursts are becoming more frequent and more intense. Burnham goes back to the bridge. Spock is still at maximum warp, and if they're stuck here much longer, they're going to lose his warp signature. Pike tries to crack this nut a few different ways. Maybe they can raise the shields to break free. Maybe they can jump. But there's not enough power really to do either. Pike's options are running out. If they lose Spock, they also lose the opportunity to protect him. Burnham requests permission to go to engineering. Maybe she can help them get the shields up, and Pike consents. In the engineering lab, Tilly is still in the reaction cube with the life form, high on life. Burnham comes to the door and she can't get in. Stamets tells her that the life form has reattached itself to Tilly, and now it's a symbiote. If they try to detach it, she's going to die. Burnham asks if there's any way they can boost power to the shields, and Stamets says there really isn't. They can't get to the warp core. Stamets then comes up with a way to possibly communicate with the life form using a harmonic interface. It links his neurons to the mycelial network, and he may be able to use it to talk to May through Tilly. This gives Burnham a flash of inspiration. The Sphere has been trying to communicate with them, and they just haven't been listening. Burnham rushes to ask Saru if the Sphere could be using the virus as a method of first contact. Saru says yes, that the ultraviolet wavelengths are repeating like letters, except Saru says it's not first contact the Sphere is trying to make, it's last contact. The Sphere is dying. Back in engineering, Stamets has connected the harmonic interface, but he's not yet able to talk to May. They need to amplify the signal, and that means they're going to have to drill into Tilly's skull. Stamets tells Reno to sterilize the drill bit. Back on the bridge, the shields are up, but they're still being held in place by the stasis field. There's an energy buildup inside the sphere. 10,000 degrees Kelvin and rising. Now 20,000. Pike orders weapons to lock onto the sphere and prepare to fire photon torpedoes. Saru implores the captain to hold his fire. He doesn't believe the sphere means them any harm. Pike has a hard time believing that given the current state of affairs, but Burnham explains that it's trying to send a message. Saru tells Pike that he thinks the Vahari has been triggered by the sphere, and he thinks that he's figured out its means of communication. Spock's shuttle will exit sensor range in six minutes, so they better hurry this up. In engineering, Stamets asks Tilly to sing her favorite song with him. As they begin to sing David Bowie's Space Oddity, he drills into her skull to place the cortical implant. He's now able to talk with May, and May is not very happy. She went to great risk to leave the mycelial network to find him. 
Stamets has been damaging their ecosystem with the jumps the Discovery has been making and threatening their way of life. Stamets asks for forgiveness. He says he's going to do whatever it takes to fix this. All he asks is that May lets Tilly go. May says she has other plans for Tilly, then breaks the restraints, and the blob envelops Tilly completely. So, the sphere's internal temperature now is up to 10 to the 6th power Kelvin. That can't be good. At all. Those are solar temperatures. Saru says that, if he's right, once the transmission by the sphere is complete, it can die knowing it will live on. Spock's shuttle is almost out of sensor range. Pike prepares to lower the shields. He also tells Detmer to prepare to eject the warp core. Maybe they can detonate it and ride the shockwave away. Pike is also bound by his oath and conscience as a Starfleet officer, and he must give the Sphere this opportunity to share its information. Lieutenant Detmer, lower the shields. They're getting all the Sphere's information. Pike orders Burnham to eject the core, and she can't. The Sphere explodes, but the discovery is safe. The Sphere reversed the polarity of the stasis field a nanosecond before it exploded, pushing Discovery clear of the blast. Its final act was to save them all. In engineering, Reno and Stamets cut into the blob that's encased Tilly. They're able to pull her out of her tauntaun-like casing. (laughs) And you thought they smelled bad on the outside. On the bridge, the crisis is over and Saru is feeling worse than ever. The crew sits in silence. Burnham goes over to Saru and tells her that now... It is his turn. Pike and the bridge crew stand as Saru asks to be taken to his quarters. This may be the last time they see him. In his quarters, Saru hands Michael Burnham a flower that he grew from the handful of seeds he brought with him from Kaminar. The flower signifies the passing of seasons on his planet. His ganglia are hanging down, but Saru is serene. He asks Michael to help him by using the Kelpian knife he has to sever his ganglia off and help him die now before the pain and madness take over. Michael tries, but she breaks down crying. She asks if this is truly inevitable, and Saru knows how hard this is. She tells him that he is her family, a sentiment that he shares as well. Saru asks her to promise that she will work to mend her relationship with Spock. If the two of them can share this kind of bond, then she certainly can develop that with her brother. With tears in her eyes, she promises that she will. Burnham tells Saru that she loves him and summons the courage to help him with his request. But his ganglia shrivel and fall off on their own to their collective surprise. They are both at a loss, but Saru is alive. Dr. Pollard certifies Saru for duty. Fear has governed his life, but now it's gone. Despite the fact that he could speak 94 languages, he tells Burnham that sometimes words are just not enough. She holds his hand and tells him they were able to record the entire 100,000-year history of the Sphere. Saru talks about the great balance of his people and their purpose with the Ba'ul. The truth that they have known is a lie. He made a promise to Captain Giorgio to uphold General Order 1 where his people were concerned, but now? Pike is in his ready room listening to some of the data from the Sphere. Burnham comes in and tells him that the Sphere managed to track Spock's shuttle beyond Discovery sensor range. Pike orders a course to be set for intercept. He says that he'll keep Burnham clear of Spockish type things, and she says that she's had a change of heart. She can't abandon him no matter what. In the engineering lab, Stamets says they need to close the door to the mycelial network forever. The May blob starts talking to Tilly again, and it doses the air with the psilocybin hallucinogen to distract Reno and Stamets while Tilly is, well, gone. Tilly? Tilly? 
A bull, a bull. I know one thing. You do the recaps because I can't talk well, sir. <laughs> nice job again. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm just. I'm glad that this entire recap, or I'm sorry, this entire outline for the episode, I have not once had to say an obble for Charon, <laughs> and you've had to say it about 20 times yeah. uh, with zero consistency, and nothing makes me happier. <laughs> it's going to happen. I'm going to say it right now. I apologize for the rest of the show. Uh, English is just. Um, uh, that, that's just it. English is a very tough language, especially for second-language speakers like you, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) Trainees, to the briefing room. So, so Bill and Barry, as we gather in the briefing room here to start our discussion on this week's episode, let's first get our high-level thoughts. Barry, thumbs up, thumbs down, couple quick points. What do you think? Oh, it's it's got to be thumbs up for sure. This episode did a lot in 48 minutes and it didn't lose you, which is pretty impressive. I, I find it it's sort of a bottle episode with an overall TOS feel. There's kind of a dash of TNG to it. And I found myself appreciating the story progression and its self-awareness, right? It, it feels like... It feels like Trek fans who've been with the franchise for a long time will notice the subtle communication of past episodes, characters, and themes and you know that are hidden kind of in all of the scenes. If you're a newer fan uh, of Trek, don't fear though, like this episode does stand on its own and I would say you're in for a treat if you're watching episodes, you know, kind of in reverse as you go back, you're going to be like, "Oh, that was mentioned in a novel for Karen." You're like, and they'll that'll happen a lot. So, it's a great great episode. Thumbs up. Yeah, I have to agree. I gave it a thumbs up as well. But I do have to admit, when I first watched it, uh, watched it this week, I wasn't overly keen on the episode. And I got to say, it's because Jet Reno, the way that she was with Stamets and Tilly, really kind of put me in a wrong frame of mind uh, at first. The other aspects of the episode, though, the Sphere and Burnham and Saru were just absolutely unbelievable. So I took it upon myself to rewatch the episode, which I really don't do often before we record Discovering Trek. And I really did appreciate everything that was going on, even those scenes in engineering. So my opinion softened quite a bit about that. Um, with that being said, the strength of the other plots in this episode, including what's going on with Tilly, were just absolutely fantastic. And it was another, I think this is two or three in a row of absolute pure Star Trek story. So I definitely give it a thumbs up, Bill. You know, this seems to be a recurring trend throughout this season of Star Trek Discovery. Uh, thumbs up and way up at that. You know, this episode was Star Trek. I and mean, that was my first thought, you know, when I was tweeting about it right after. We have a, a live spoiler thread on, on our Camp Kidmer Facebook group that goes up with every episode. And that was my first thought there, too. I get that there's a loud minority of people out there who say that Discovery isn't Star Trek. But if you watch this episode and still, stay, still say that, I'm sorry. It's because you don't want to see the Star Trek in it. The Star Trek in this episode smacks you right in the face. And anyone who says that Discovery isn't Star Trek really just has has no idea what they're talking about. Absolutely. So three thumbs up. That's that's a lot of thumbs up we've gotten this season. I think everybody's given a thumbs up every single week since the beginning of season two. So that's very cool. Uh, let's start talking about some of the key points of the episode. Um, the first one that I want to bring up is a small part of the episode, but it's the one that I've been waiting for since San Diego Comic-Con. And that is the introduction of Rebecca Romaine as the Enterprise's number one. We only got to see her for a few minutes, but I absolutely loved what the character was like in Discovery. It built off what we saw back in the original series. And Barry, let's start with you. Anything specific about this character that you liked or didn't like? And and when I say didn't like, don't tell me you didn't like anything. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I, I mean, first of all, Rebe- Rebecca Romaine stands on her own as well as an amazing actor. She has she has done so much work uh, with with the Marvel universe. I mean, of course, we can go back into the horror genre as well, where she has definitely staked her place. But um, she she takes the the grace and at the same time, I would say the the authority that Number One had when she was played by Majel Barrett so many years ago that. Um, I, I feel a little bit of that, but I guess part of me as well, just knowing the chops that Rebecca Romaine has, I wouldn't mind seeing her kind of take number one in, in directions that she as an actor would like to see. I think there's a lot of room to grow and build off of that. Of course, we didn't see number one very much originally. So as much as there's a lot to pay homage to, I think there's a lot of um, areas we can discover about number one coming up. Bill, she likes cheeseburgers. We saw that. <laughs> I love cheeseburgers, which means we're a match made in heaven. There you Just go. Throwing that out there. I wanted. I love the fact we got to see number one. I wanted to know her name because yeah. I wanted them to make the direct tie into the the name that's been established in the novels for years of Commander Una. I was hoping that there would just be the, just a casual reference. And, um, I mean, I get it. Uh, plus, I mean, I hoped she'd be on for more screen time because theoretically now she's on her way to space dock and who knows if we're going to see her again. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I hope there's more. I want more of this character. And I still want a Pike on the Enterprise series when this is done. I, I, I'm not going to lie. Uh, that's how much I enjoyed the brief glimpse of number one that we got. Part of me was happy that they didn't because I wasn't sure what they were going to go with. And I was worried that like Pike was going to turn to to number one and be like, thank you, Gail. And then I'd be like, oh, it's been ruined. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Gail. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) Very nice. Um, I did see a behind the episode, a behind the scenes uh, little blurb on Twitter the other day with Rebecca. And based on what she was saying and how she was saying it, we are definitely going to see her again this season. So I think that's a good thing. I do want to see where this character goes. She has a lot to give the character. I loved in her shorts or uh, small scenes that she had this week, some of the subtle writing that were in these scenes that really makes me love this writing staff so much. I feel like I talk about it every week because they're doing what they promised to do. Why are there no hollow communicators on the Enterprise? Now we know. That small, subtle line about ripping them all out because the Enterprise was the only uh, ship that had this um, issue, which required it to be in space dock, was brilliant. No engineer could love the Enterprise more than Louvier. I thought was great because, of course, now we all know what Scotty's going to be like. I just love how the writers are doing things like that. Um, the other thing that I liked is the pad that she had was very reminiscent of a TOS uh, pad that we saw uh, back in the 60s. I love how they do these subtle things all through Discovery. Um, one of the other things that um, happened after the fact, talking about TOS technology, of course, was the Universal Translator and the Universal Translator bridge scene that was fantastic writing right there it makes you wonder if all the humans on the ship speak in standard terran or their native tongue this kind of gave the idea that they don't but i loved how they were able to jump around various languages almost every other sentence in that bridge scene and uh it just it just another another big thumbs up to the writing staff uh bill what did you think about this scene um, do you think that it was overdone? Do you think it was perfectly done? I think it was perfectly done, and I'm interested in hearing what you think. Oh, no, I thought it was fantastic. So uh, here's a little inside baseball. So in order to write the recap every week, I, I watched the episode a few times. 
And one of those involves watching it with the, the closed captioning or the subtitles on. So that in case I have a question as I'm going through and, and writing the recap, I can just refer back to the actual dialogue as it's there and, and not, you know, miss anything or, or maybe uh, get the spelling of a word that I didn't quite understand how it was pronounced. In the Universal Translator scene, if you turn on the closed captioning, they reference all of the languages that each character is speaking with the translation. So uh, there were at least six or seven different languages in that scene. And the whole time I'm just smiling from ear to ear because I think it all worked so seamlessly. I thought it was a fun scene. I thought it was a great way to illustrate, you know, um, what was happening as a result of making contact with the sphere and, you know, the instant chaos that it was bringing to the discovery. I thought it was, I thought it was great. The only thing that I was hoping to see in addition to what we saw on this initial bridge scene with the Universal Translator was some kind of off-handed or subtle reference to Hoshi Sato. That would have been just amazing since she pretty much invented the Universal Translator. But Barry, what do you think about that scene? I again, I, I enjoyed it really. Like I enjoyed it quite a bit. It was it was manic, and and I liked that sort of manic feel to it because everyone's bouncing off each other, and yeah, they're shouting at each other in completely different languages over and over again. So kudos to the actors. I mean, I, I speak a bit of conversational German, a little bit of Japanese, um, and then obviously with the Canadian connection, I can understand French relatively well. So you know, it was kind of neat, kind of in my brain having to switch gears and, and, and watch this whole thing un- unfold as it was going, I guess, um, what was I going to say? There was part of me wonders, you know, like if they would have said something like, you know, the, the Hoshi Sato or the Sato matrix hasn't, hasn't come through. That would be kind of mm-hmm. cool. But the other really cool nod that I like was a lot of people last year did sort of complain about the amount of Klingon subtitling that was going on, which I personally really enjoyed. But uh, I almost feel like if this was like a, you don't like subtitles, you're not going to like this. And so <laughs> I enjoyed that too, because for, for me, someone who likes to see all that culture intermingling and connecting and, and yeah, the idea that maybe they don't speak standard English as we would consider it today, um, you know, that kind of breaks down that conceit a little bit. And I think that's really neat. Yeah, it was it was very well done. Um, at, right after, just on a very small side note, right after that scene when when um, Saru and Burnham were were still working on the problem and life support was failing, I did love how they referenced the fact that life support was down to. 47%. That was a beautiful, beautiful thing. I loved it. Uh, so, of course, with this Universal Translator and the problem that they had on the bridge at the beginning of the episode, it is all about this sphere that they have run into. So, Barry, I'm going to stay with you for the moment. Let's talk a little bit about the sphere. For me, this aspect of the episode reminded me a little bit about the Corbinite mon- <laughs> see david sinian language is taking over <laughs> david sinian the, i love it <laughs> the, the corbin might maneuver you know minus the big bad scary puppet you know there's this unknown superior being the difference in culture is causing stress and possible too swift of an action we see level heads prevail so that's a good thing uh what was your take on the sphere i, I gotta say the special effects for the sphere were just phenomenal they were so detailed i thought it was great but what do you think man I'm I again I really like I I keep sounding like a broken record here but this was this was truly trek right the idea that the the crew comes across something large that could pose an existential threat to the entire mission that they're on both in a we can't catch up to Spock in time and also we can't just pull ourselves away from this gigantic mass in space that's trying to get our attention for some reason it really does smack of the original star trek feel of 
crew is doing something, encounters something else, and then has to figure out what the heck they're going to do as a crew. So I think that's the other really cool part of it is the sphere affects every other part of the episode. So it truly is like that that sort of prime plot. But your subplots are so strong, they also affect what's happening with their handling of the sphere in the end too so it sort of folds over itself really really well and yeah i mean i can see that the idea of coming across some gigantic um terrifying space thing i mean it also reminds me a little bit of galaxy's child too right the idea of there is a living thing out in space encountering other things and in this case it wants to tell its story i'm interested also i'm wondering if if uh, this this sphere is going to have some information on the Red Angel. And I'm also wondering if some Iconian knowledge might be popping up with this. Oh, very nice. Nice tie-ins there. I I, um, I like the idea of what we saw with the sphere. Bill, you remember back on Trek Geeks uh, a couple of years ago, we did an episode on relics and how absolutely unbelievable it was for me that the Dyson sphere had never been seen and the size of, the, of it based on what the Enterprise looked like. I just didn't get it. This one I got. I appreciated it, and I think it worked. I love the idea that the sphere provided over a um, hundred thousand years of knowledge to the the ship. What before it before it quote died, and Pike actually said that it's going to take centuries to comb through it all. So I like what Barry just said about all the different types of information. I'm kind of thinking the um, what's the starbase in TOS where the library. Um, the Lights of Zatar episode takes place where that library is written out I want, uh, or deleted. I wonder if that has anything to do with this. But what was your take on the sphere, buddy? I, you know, you both summed it up almost perfectly. I mean, Barry, you know, there's a reason why Barry is as great as he is. It's because he comes up with things that you and I are too dumb to come up with. <laughs> and um, he really knocked it out of the park. I, um, I do have to say the thing I liked the most about the sphere and the problem it presented was the chaos the crew was thrust into and the way that they had to work together. And I think that's the thing that evoked the original series the most for me. But it also evoked elements of TNG. And it, when, as I was watching it, I was sitting there going, could you imagine that if TNG had this budget back in the day, yeah, what they could have done? And there was the technology for the effects. Because this whole thing looked believable and it looked amazing. You know, it, it presented a, a problem on a variety of levels. And it wasn't just, well, we need to figure out you know, how to do X. It's we need to do A through Z and we need to do it all now before Spock gets away. Um, and it was believable to me, which I think was probably the best part about it. So I, I love mysteries. You know, I, I love the fact that we don't know much about the sphere even still. But, you know, in the end, we learned why it made contact. And I think that that really was the most important part. One of the aspects that I liked, it made me think a little bit about the devil in the dark, actually. We've yeah. got this life form that is so completely different than what we're norm, normal or used to seeing. Not a, a humanoid, but it just a very different life form and how we react and deal with those kind of situations. I thought that with the sphere, it was a very uh, a very nicely done way of how different people reacted. I was surprised at Pike's reaction, but then I remember what he was like in the cage, so I was able to understand it a little bit more and and the things that he had gone through um as captain of the enterprise so i really really enjoyed it and i was actually kind of sad to see that the sphere was destroyed at the end i kind of would have liked to have seen something with that being later on down the road barry Absolutely. I, I wonder if we're going to encounter it, and I wonder if it has anything to do with those red bursts, but that can be long-range scan kind of uh, conversation happening there. Overall, you know, inter, you know, 
Starship crew experiences something um, big and and threatening isn't outside of the purview of what we've noticed in other Star Trek episodes, but it was handled in a discovery way, right? Like it wasn't it wasn't just just T- TNG recycled or Voyager recycled or TOS recycled, but uh, it, I, I would say it still had the TOS feel more than anything else. So let's move down to engineering, guys, because uh, there was a lot going on in there. Uh, Tilly May. Stamets, Reno. Um, in episode one, uh, Bill and I talked about the fact that uh, uh, Reno was a little over the top in the in the way that she acted, and we were hoping that we would the next time we saw her, if we did see her, it would be a little bit more toned down. And Bill, I'm, uh, I think it's safe to say that it was not, and it was more like uh, times ten from episode one. Um, what did you think? <laughs> well, it, it's kind of rough because. I like the scenes in the engineering lab. Um, I, I thought that there was a lot there. I thought it did a lot to propel that element of the storyline and, and possibly set up things for down the road. But I still have a tremendous problem with Jet Reno. Um, you remember the first time we mentioned the character in, in episode 201, we talked about how, okay, this is essentially Tignataro on screen being Tignataro. And you and I had both hoped that it would change. And it did. Um, I think it became much more abrasive and, and much more um, uh, sarcastic than perhaps I wanted. You know, I think of other characters in, in Star Trek that have been jerks. You know, I think of Styles. I think of Bailey. I think of Kaczynski in TNG. I think mm. of uh, Leland T. Lynch. I think of Edward Jellicoe. And they all wear the Starfleet uniform, but none of them are truly likable characters because they're jerks. We hope that these characters aspire to something more. You know, we, we hope that they fit the, you know, the vision of working together in, in unity that, that we've come to expect from our Starfleet crew. But, and I feel like I have to preface this and say it again, I love Tig Notaro. I love the work she's done. I just don't like her in Discovery because there's no character here. This is essentially just Tig in a spacesuit, you know, being a sarcasm generating machine. And that's the thing I have the problem with. I think the character is wholly unlikable. Um, and uh, I had a hard time with those scenes. I do think that they did tone it down at the right times, like the space oddity uh, par- portion of the scene where Stamets and Tilly are, are singing David Bowie. But um, other than that, I just I, I did have a hard time with that aspect of those scenes. Barry, I don't I don't have any any connection to to uh, Tig Notaro. I, I actually have never encountered. Uh, the actor before maybe it's because I live in the frozen wasteland that is Canada. We just haven't we haven't received uh, any transmissions yet. Um, but uh, no, having no actual context for who Tignataro is, I don't find the character as abrasive. Though I do find she seems very kind of oppositional to basically everything. And and sometimes it kind of reminds me of Stamets at the very very start of season one last year, where he mm-hmm. seemed kind of. But he, I guess he had good reason to be because he was protecting a stock of extremely valuable and hard to manage uh, mushrooms and, and all that sort of stuff. So she doesn't quite have the, the same reasoning to be as much of a jerk. Actually, with the with the ship's virus happening, I was kind of wondering if it was going to call one of the crewmates a jerk or maybe sew that onto one of the back of their uniforms or something. But I guess <laughs> more than anything... <laughs> More than anything, I liked the way that they played off of each other quite a bit. I feel very much like a theater, like a like a theater troupe feel has started to form out of engineering, and this is more kind of with the actors, with with both um, um, 
Oh man, what am I doing? My brain just stopped working. Anthony Rapp, there we are. <laughs> Anthony Rapp, yeah. there you go. You know, Anthony Rapp is sort of, I, I feel like he's kind of emanating this this sort of happy feel among the actors and stuff. So my hope is, is that over time we're going to get to know uh, Reno a little bit better and and she'll become more of her own character rather than just sort of an avatar of the actor who she actually is, as you guys are saying. But as someone without any context, yeah, wasn't too bad. As we all know in season one, and 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 I will give this to to Jet. She was not around for the end of the war, but she has been on Discovery for I would say at least a couple of weeks now, depending on how long how much time has passed between the start of episode one and, and episode four. So she probably has a good idea of what took place and how the war ended. And to be perfectly honest, in my opinion, Stamets' invention and what he was able to do was what won the war against the Klingons. And the first thing that she does when she meets Stamets for the first time is insult the hell out of him, insult the hell out of the mushrooms, insult the hell out of the spore drive. That's not a way that Starfleet greets each other, in my mind. That's why I had a little bit of a problem with it the first time I saw it. I also then, when I rewatched it, looked back and said, okay, they're trying to do this in a way that, you know, breaking the ice type of thing. I very much appreciate your comment, Barry, about Stamets was the, the exact same way uh, when we first saw him in the first episodes of season one. I just, I just, it, it continued and continued. And Bill also said that it, it toned it down at the right parts. There were other aspects of that scene that I really did appreciate and did and really did like, first of all, thumbs up David Bowie on Star Trek people. I mean, how can you not yes. love that? Yeah. That was absolutely fantastic. And for me, this these scenes when we find out what's going on um, with the mycelial network was a real callback for me to TNG's Force of Nature, the episode where warp drive was causing damage to certain areas of of space. This revelation, of course, is in my opinion, is going to be why the spore drive gets shut down and the crew is forced to cut off from ever visiting the mycelial network again, which is why we never see it and TOS forward. So I like how the writing continues to evolve into things that people have had questions about since Discovery launched. Uh, the other thing that I liked about these scenes, we've talked over the last couple of weeks of of, Till, of the character of Tilly. Is it too much Tilly this season so far? Is her humor too much? Another episode like last week where Tilly didn't really have any humor, so to speak, in this episode. She's scared, and she did, she has a right to be scared. And I thought that Mary did a, a, a fantastic job of showing us that fear in a lot of the scenes that she was in. I mean, how can you not be scared when you're getting a hole drilled in your head, right, Bill? <laughs> it happens to me <laughs> at least once a week. Um, I, you know, I do think one of the most effective scenes was when May was speaking through Tilly. And I, I thought that it was really well done by Mary Wiseman. Um, I, I thought that she was able to convey, you know, the right look because obviously they had they had dubbed the other actress's voice over hers with some, you know, almost some uh, some post processing afterwards to make it sound like it was something else. But uh, I, I it really conveyed the sense of of what was going on and what was at stake for those life forms. And I thought it was really super well done. Yeah, I I agree with you. I had an immediate callback to Force of Nature. Um, I've had an immediate callback to some Voyager things, you know, with regard to other life forms and other types of space being affected. So uh, I, I thought that those particular parts of the scenes all around were just home runs for me. Barry, what do you think about Tilly and what's going on? And and that thing that she got encased in was kind of gross. 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, it truly was. And my, my first question, and this is a couple of uh, outside of the franchise callbacks. First of all, is Tilly in the upside down now? I'm wondering that that's uh, <laughs> that's the first thing I'm wondering. Uh, the second one is uh, is is I was hoping that maybe at one point they'd throw in there is no Tilly, only Zool when she was voicing over what she was saying. <laughs> but uh <laughs> Yeah, and in terms of callbacks, I always think of when Data was impersonating Captain Picard's voice, and it was done so perfectly and almost hauntingly realistically. It was the same idea. Mary Wiseman had to channel a lot of different energies at the exact same time. Like, I don't know how she prepared herself from scene to scene down there, because one second she's bubbly Tilly, the next she's, you know, getting getting drugged basically by this creature, and the next she's a completely different character. Mm-hmm. So, one, two, three, that was pretty impressive. But I guess yeah the 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 hallucination scene and then like the call to David Bowie I was a little bit like really I I didn't necessarily see the need for that the only change I would have made it is is if they were going to make reference to David Bowie and drug use they should have done station to station rather than space oddity <laughs> that is that is a fantastic observation. Now, I mean, two of my favorite artists of, of all time are David Bowie and Prince. So to have call outs yeah. to both of those in the same episode for me was something pretty special. But Barry, that's that's a fantastic observation, my friend. <laughs> it's not the side effects of the oh, wait, no, of the mu- mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing let's talk about, of course, in my mind, was the best part about this week's episode and that is the Saru Burnham arc and what we saw and what was going on with Saru. I guys, I got to tell you, I I have been giving props to Doug Jones for a long time. How this guy can act with always having prosthetics covering his face or his entire body and still for us as fans and watchers to see the raw and powerful emotion coming through, not just in his voice, but in everything he does is truly magnificent. He was unbelievable this week. And I'll tell you what, if this guy doesn't get an Emmy nomination, at least for what he's done so far in season two, I'm going to be pretty aggravated. Uh, Barry, what did you think about it? Of course, there was a lot of emotion, a lot of things going on. We saw the true feelings between these two characters come out when they thought that uh, Saru was about to die. And I think that the bond that that they admitted to is going to have very strong and very positive outcome or aspects going forward for the rest of the season. It was very genuine. And Sonequa Martin-Green and Doug Jones are both, I mean, the reason why they are sort of, I would I would argue probably the two big title characters of this episode at the very least. I almost wonder if, like, I don't know how the writing process works and how actors get to see scripts and stuff like that. But part of me wonders if they were told whether or not Saru was going to live or die. Because even, like, in their eyes, you could kind of tell, like, there was searching of, like, what the hell am I going to do? And it, there were points where I was like, are they going to to kill Saru like I I can't say I was completely convinced he was going to make it through and then I was like stupid discovery why would you get rid of Doug Jones that's the dumbest thing you could possibly do and I was like all huffy and angry but I was emotionally responding to it and I guess my emotional response if I was in that situation was to have thrown a little tantrum because I was doing that in my seat when I was watching so yeah it was it was really great that the genuineness the the understanding that you can have siblings you can have family you can you can have father figures and mother figures and stuff and not be related to them i think is a really really important thing again sort of as humans to understand that 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 you can 
you can pick up figures within a family and they don't necessarily have to hold the exact same genetic code. Um, it, it, it's always bigger than that. And it goes between species. So yeah, it was, it was a beautiful, beautiful scene there between the two of them at the end. And I totally dig Saru's quarters. Like, holy cow. It's like a floor salad. It was really good. <laughs> Hashtag floor salad. Floor salad. I like that. Bill, uh, we know through our discussions that the character of Saru has a very strong and personal connection with you. Uh, I'm sure that you were just over the moon with what we saw this week. Uh, th- that's that's putting it mildly. You know, I mean, I knew that Saru wasn't going to die. And that's because we haven't been to Kaminar yet. You know, we know they're going back there. But like Barry said, I'm sitting there in the... You know, on my sofa, going, I, I, I can't believe they're gonna kill Saru. <laughs> I literally had tears streaming down my face during that scene with with he and Burnham in in the uh, the uh, the floor salad. I um, <laughs> see. I feel like I have to call it that now. In the floor salad. Be- in the floor salad. That's episode five, Star Trek Discovery. I um, I, I, it was so well done, and there was so much emotion there. You know, I've seen some people going, "Oh, so now they're close." It's like, no, they've been close all along. They've just never really admitted to each other the closeness that they share. We've seen moments where they've had connections. You know, when Burnham gives Saru uh, George's telescope, you know, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, if uh, we know that they've got a history, a long history from when they were aboard the Shenzhou together. And, you know, to see this just sort of, you know, open admission between the two of them, because they think it's the end, I, I thought was just uh, just gut-wrenching and beautiful and, and wonderful all at the same time. You know, it's a, we've talked about it earlier this season on Discovering Trek, you know, rarely do, um, uh, you know, the members of one's family grow up under the same roof. And uh, I think that's especially true in this case. They are family, and I'm glad that they both now walk around knowing it. If not for the... Um previews that we've seen of what's going to be coming up on season two, I would have been a little nervous as to what would have happened in that final scene. We've talked about how shows now, Game of Thrones, Walking Dead, Discovery, Georgiou died in episode one. I mean, it it happens. It can happen. And I was a little nervous, but then I remember that I've seen some things in the coming attraction, so to speak, that uh, had not taken place yet. So yeah, I was a little nervous. Uh, I'm not going to lie, but beautiful scene between the two of them. And I'm just glad, Bill, as we're going to get to here in just a moment, that Saru did not become part of our next segment's discussion. You know, now is the time that uh, we feel it's necessary to reflect on those that we have lost in this week's episode of Star Trek Discovery. It's a somber part of our show, but we feel it's the least we can do for those who have paid the ultimate price. We like to call it the Red Shirt Roll Call. He's dead, Jim. He's dead, Jim. He's dead, Jim. He's dead, Jim. Bill, last week, things got back on track on the red shirt roll call with uh, the Klingon episode and lots and lots of of, uh, of Klingons dying. This week, however, it's an entirely different observance. You know, it really is. Um, you know, we joked around with this segment a lot in the past, but really there's nothing to joke about here. You know, this week we offer our respect and admiration to the big giant sphere thingy. You know, before it left us, it gave us 100,000 years of knowledge to benefit the galaxy. You know, there's nothing that's more Star Trek than that. We may not have understood it initially, but man, are we grateful for our time with it and hope that we can learn more about its kind in the future. Oh, without a doubt, man. So, cheers, Sphere Thing, as we raise a glass of Synthahol in your honor in this week's Red Shirt Roll Call. We could call it Carol. (laughs) 
<laughs> that's got to stay in. That's got to stay in. <laughs> just this long pause, and then just like we, we could call it Carol. <laughs> Here we are heading I'll for just, the mid-roll, and Barry's I'm, dropping one-liners. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just making this interesting for your Patreon supporters. <laughs> this week's episode is brought to you by Fansets, the exclusive sponsor for Discovering Trek. And, you know, we are just thrilled to have them back for the full season. You know, now available, Dan, is the amazing Disco Enterprise pin that was just released. It's bold and it's beautiful and it's just the latest Star Trek pin available from Fansets. You know, seriously, you all have to check out their amazing line of pins at fansets.com. Do yourself a favor and head on over to their site right now. Take all the pins, not just one, not two, all. Perhaps you misheard me. All the pins and put them in your cart. And be sure to use the checkout code FAMILY, that's F-A-M-I-L-Y in all capital letters, to get a 15% discount on your entire order at fansets.com. Dan, 15%. Now, this code is going to be available to use until Sunday, February 17th, 2019 at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. 15%? 1-5-15. That's amazing. That's awesome. You know, in addition to that beautiful Enterprise bill, which I know you just ordered recently. I'm going to tell people right now, you just ordered Uh that. Um, You remember that special TOS communicator pin? We've been talking about it a lot. It's been available on our website at trekgeeks.com slash pins. Well, we're very proud to announce that this week as this episode drops, if you're listening to it in real time, um, our second pin is going to be available. It's the TOS Delta Tricorder pin. It's going to be available both at our site, trekgeeks.com slash pins, and over at fansets.com. So head on over there. Add the second pin to your collection. You're not going to be disappointed. It's absolutely gorgeous. Little, you know, little spoiler, I've been wearing it for a few days now because I have one already. So it's very nice. Um, and for those of you that are interested in purchasing both or more than one pin from us, Bill and I are going to have a very special discount code available for you when the pin drops later this week um, so you can save some quatloos on your order. Fansets, we are Star Trek. And as always, we thank our friends at Fansets for being our exclusive sponsor for the entire season of Discovering Trek. Of all the souls I have encountered in my travels, his was the most human Star Trek has always been a reflection of our times, and in this segment, we'll take a look at what this episode helps us to discover about our own humanity, or perhaps even what it tells us about ourselves. And Barry, it's no joke that this episode um, had a lot of strong emotion in it. It had a lot of things to talk about, a lot of things to reflect on. So what have you got for us, man? IDIC is all over this episode. Each situation is unique and it's connected. Each individual character is laid bare by how they respond to the situations they are placed in and how they interact with one another. Pike's response to the potential threat of the sphere is tempered by Saru's empathy. Frustrated tension exists between Stamets, Reno, and Tilly as they encounter what I can only consider to be a 24th century version of a trapped or escaped room. Burnham's refusal to accept the loss of her surrogate brother, the sphere's true intentions, all of these things interact, intertwine, and add to the diversity of the scene itself. I saw this diversity of experience that all unified to form this one coherent narrative. So lots of nods to the past episodes and characters without losing its discovery uniqueness, right? It is kind of how I feel this this whole thing went, is it, it gives 
the people who who want to see the, those old nods and those continuities to continue going, but it still is breaking a little bit. And I think that's important because it shows its diversity. Like the reason why we have DS9, Voyager, TNG is because they are all diverse iterations of the original. And that's what Discovery is still doing for us. So it also gives me the idea that like, look at our own community as Trek fans, right? We are so incredibly diverse. Um, there's also another sort of common thread that exists with this uh, whole bit of diversity, and that is the connect connection to death. Pretty much every Trek episode sees our heroes find themselves in deadly situations, but not many episodes really explore that like death itself and how it's experienced overall. So I guess uh, Charon being the boatman that takes people across the river sticks, maybe he would give you his two cents if you spent some time and gave him an O-ball for his thoughts. So that's kind of where I'm at is, is diversity. And then the great unifier, um, which is death. So kind of a deep end to, to my, uh, my thoughts there. <laughs> Very deep. Saru Burnham, you know, if that's not the apex of what it means to be human, even if you're not human, then I really don't know what is. Here are two beings who have lost so much at different points in their lives. Burnham lost her parents, was taken in by Sarek and Amanda. And while some may argue this, as a result of being taken in by them, she lost some of her own humanity, like we saw in early flashbacks of when she when she joined uh, Captain Georgiou years earlier. Saru lost his sister, his family, his planet, and his way of life. They both lost their captain, and at one point, they actually lost each other. Yet here they are in this episode, proclaiming to each other that they feel as if they are brother and sister. Burnham was ready to help Saru end his life so he would not suffer. And he trusted her enough to bring her into this very private part of his species. It shows that the importance of family, something that we talked about last week, doesn't mean blood. It can mean so much more than that. And I got to say, I have two people that I consider my family right here on this podcast today. So Bill and Barry, thanks for being part of my family, guys. You know, we've done this now 18 times previously, considered the humanity in these episodes of Star Trek Discovery. And each time the segment has been a, a very incredibly personal one for me. You know, while Star Trek Deep Space Nine has been my favorite Trek for a long time, I've often stated that Discovery was the Trek I knew I wanted, but the one I didn't know I also needed. I've developed a deep affection and respect for Saru because I feel like his journey mimics mine on, on some levels. You know, for the first time, I've seen something of myself in a Star Trek character, and it's given me a lot to ponder. We know that Saru is a character who lives his life in fear, but he approaches the theoretical end of his life with such bravery and grace and poise. He faces an uncertain future now, and some people may think that the loss of his ganglia might make him fear-free, but I wonder if he's just lost his early warning system. You know, they, the ganglia would show themselves when he would sense danger or even the coming of death, and while this may serve to embolden him, it might also have the opposite effect and make him even more fearful of the unknown. The best thing for Saru, though, is that he has family to help him. You know, we all need a support system. And, and although he's had sharp disagreements and even resentment toward Michael Burnham in the past, he knows that he can count on her and rely on her because that's what happens with your family. In the end, Saru is not alone and truly none of us are, especially in our most fearful moments. Commendation, palm leaf of Axanar Peace Mission, Grand Kite Order of Tactics, Class of Excellence, Frenteris 
ribbon of commendation. Well, guys, it's time for some awards. I love this part of the show. I, I, I wish I could get more awards. Nobody gives me awards, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you an award right now, mister. <laughs> okay. Well, let's see what we picked up this week. To re- who, who picked up your Starfleet commendations this week? For me, I'm going to start with Rebecca freaking Romaine. Love this actress. She looked amazing in that yellow uniform. I love what they have done for these pre-TOS, TOS uniforms. They look fantastic. Um, she was on screen for such a small amount of time, but she nailed her scenes, and I can't wait to see more of this character. Obviously, she respects and cares about Spock because of what she has done uh, to get information to the captain. And speaking of Captain Pike, I really love the chemistry that she and Anson Mount had for the scene, and I'm looking forward to seeing them not only in Discovery, but uh, Star Trek Take Note, what Bill has been saying, let's get that Pike C- uh, series started. Hashtag Pike series, people. Um, I loved the Sphere story. Don't get me wrong. I loved last season. It's no secret. This season is getting back to what Star Trek has always been applauded for. Stories about discovery, no pun intended, and exploration and hope for humanity. Jordan Ardino, Gretchen Berg, and Aaron Harbert's penned a wonderful story that had so much star trek in it this week and i pray to the prophets that it continues because it has been masterful but last and certainly no not least i have got to give a starfleet commendation of the highest caliber to doug jones we talked about it a little while ago he's a master at his craft he's 100 percent covered in latex i didn't really like the shirtless scene it looked a little weird but anyway he projects emotion in every single scene he does we talked recently about how great a saru story uh, the brightest star was the short trek. And I believe that this episode eclipsed that short trek as the best Saru moments in Star Trek Discovery. You know, I had the opportunity to meet and speak with Doug Jones on a couple of occasions over the last year or two, and I cherish them because he is like the fansets tagline. He is Star Trek, and I love that guy so much. Bill? You know, I have a, I have one combination, but I have a quick runner-up, and that's uh, my run, runner-up combination this week is Jeff Goldblum. And so there was a tweet that went out from the Star Trek writers room this week that had a an artist sketch of Saru on his his bed salad, and directly opposite from that was the pose of Jeff Goldblum lying back with his shirt open, you know, sort of propped up <laughs> on one elbow. It's kind of like seeming like the inspiration. So I got to throw out a runner-up commendation to Jeff Goldblum just because he's Jeff Goldblum. But in reality, I have one commendation this week, and it's for the incomparable Doug Jones. There is just so much to love about this episode. I could go on and on with a list of commendations, but Saru's storyline truly stands head and Kelpian shoulders above the rest, and it is just so beautifully portrayed, Dan. Kelpian shoulders. That's great. You're welcome. Barry, top that one, Barry. <laughs> well, I don't know if I can get as tall as a Kelpian, but uh, I would say my my biggest commendation goes out to Lee Rose. This episode was brilliantly directed. Lee was able to temper the manic energy of this episode and channel it into engaging elements of a busy but coherent story. From directing multiple languages to high tension to heartfelt love and sorrow, while letting each actor's vision of their character through. All of this while tapping into themes and tropes from past iterations of Trek, mind you. Lee Rose has had lots of plates spinning and she made it look 
good. So a hundred percent, just I was like, whoever directed this it either is crazy or the greatest pro you could ever have, and maybe you have to kind of be both to be a director. So therefore, also the DSC actors, right? Discovery actors they were shifting themselves into overdrive. Everybody on the screen looks challenged and they look like they're enjoying themselves, right? Like I recall hearing that uh, on each Star Trek set, there's a different field, the most notorious of which was the difference between Voyager and Deep Space Nine. Deep Space Nine being renowned for its seriousness and then Voyager kind of being a little more jovial. I feel a lot, I feel a lot like this, this sort of, set has a lot of real friendships on it. Um, there's a lot of goofiness, a lot of inside jokes shared by all and the real sense of community. So I think that is all directly why we get such amazing scenes when all of that positive energy comes together. And then finally, my big nod is the special effects department. And I would say the sound team specifically have really stepped up their game. I kind of had some problems last year with Deep Space, or sorry, with uh, Discovery Season 1. There are too many canned sound effects I found, and that's like a little thing that's just kind of me. But like when Ash is working on the worker bee and he flashes back, there's an electrical sound that's been overused so much. Like it's in every cartoon from the 80s if you hear it. If you go back and watch that episode, you will hear it. Also, the tardigrade made the exact same sound when it was getting plugged into the ship every time it happened. And for whatever reason, maybe it's just like my kind of idiosyncrasy. I didn't like that. I was like, ah, it should make like a different noise noise so i really like the textures that you could hear in this episode with the sphere the different ambient sounds the ships make makes when it's in different modes from like warp to full stop the mixing was really great um when you add to like the coherence of everyone talking in different languages so maybe as someone who enjoys the mixing process nowadays i weirdly sort of do um i'm no pro by any stretch but uh, definitely a big time commendation to the sound department they've done a fantastic job Long-range scan of planet complete. So here we go, guys. Uh, Long-range scanners are in full mode right now, so let's talk about what we think is going to happen either next week or later on in the series, uh, in the season, I should say. And, Barry, I'm going to start off with you, man. What do you got? What's coming down the pike? (laughs) Oh, horrifying burns. Just horrifying (laughs) burns. That's what's coming down the pike. Unfortunately, (laughs) he's going to be speaking with a light bulb sooner than later. Wow. <laughs> uh, anywho, my first big question is, is Tilly actually like in the upside down? I, I'm, it, it, I really do wonder if she's going to in, encounter like a Gormagander or that one kid with the funny speech impediment. He's he's lovely. Um, I, I, yeah, I'm wondering where where this is going to go. Personally, I'm inclined to think that Culber's hiding in there somewhere. And that's what Stamets is going to encounter in all of this. Um, with through this mycelial entity. Also, I think we have our reason for why there's no more jumping, right? As we talked about, Force of Nature kind of talks about this, and it sounds like every time they jump, they kind of mow the mycelial lawn in different cases, and that becomes a bit of a problem because it's cutting stuff down every time it does it. I also wonder if they're going to follow that rule as much as they followed the warp speed limit in the next generation because if that's the case then really they should be jumping everywhere by season three of tos but (laughs) (laughs) i'm assuming i'm assuming they'll get it figured out so i also pretty like i said i'm pretty sure that the sphere has some intel on the red angel and the bursts themselves Uh, and i wonder if spock was plan a for that spear or sorry for that sphere and the discovery was plan b because they were following the same trajectories so i'm again wondering how much of the sphere does does spock actually know um and and all that sort of stuff so 
I'm also maybe a little worried about the way Burnham and Spock are going to encounter each other, right? Like Burnham is really hepped up on her, her siblinghood with Saru. And now she's really trying to make it work with her siblinghood with Spock. And I almost wonder if that's going to be the tragedy is, is she's going to find out that actually she's closer to Saru than she is to Spock. And that's maybe the way it's going to pan out. I don't know. That's, those are just sort of my, my, my failing throws into the, into the future. That's a lot to take in, man. Yeah, I, <laughs> I thank I, you though. <laughs> I overthink this stuff. It, it's it's That's all, all right. Sh- it's all shower thoughts well, for me at this point. <laughs> it's all good stuff. Um, you know, I've been toying with this idea for a while, but I really have not said anything because honestly, I don't have anything to back it up with until now. Because I really feel about this now. After this week's preview of what we saw, what's coming next week, which we'll get into very shortly. I can say that I think that Spock is running away from something or towards something. And he's been accused of murdering these three doctors. And I think section 31 is involved in it. I don't know how, I don't know why, but I think with all this teasing that we've had about Spock and we're four episodes into the season and we haven't seen him at all, except in a flashback as a child, but yet we've seen section 31 and we're going to see section 31 next week. I feel more and more, like they're involved and somehow Spock is not a member of 31, but he is a pawn of that organization. Bill. Wow. That's, that's pretty good. I, you might actually have one come true for the first time and I'm very excited for you about this. I know Um, (laughs) I've got, uh, before I get to my actual prediction, I'm going to say that I think the hashtags I've been able to call from Barry's (laughs) observations this week are going to be huge on Twitter. And let me just (laughs) review them really quickly. There's hashtag floor salad. There's hashtag mow the mycelial lawn and there's hashtag shower thoughts. I think those are all going to pop on the Twitter this week, Barry. I think you're, uh, I think you're going to be a superstar by weeks on. Oh gosh. Uh, (laughs) I had a a tough time with my actual long range scan this week because I think there was just so much going on in this episode, but I think we're going to make a discovery in the mycelial network next week. That is going to be a total and complete game changer. And I think it's going to center around Hugh Culber. And that's all I'm going to say at this time. I'm not going to say anything. Mm-mm. That would be a first. <laughs> <laughs> so we got an interesting preview for next week at the end of Discovery this week. So, Bill, what do we got? What's coming up? Well, Dan, next week we're going to consider episode five of the season of Discovery. And joining us to examine Saints of Imperfection will be Aaron Gallo from the Starfleet Escape podcast. Until then, remember that you can subscribe to Discovering Trek by searching for us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or by heading on over to discoveringtrek.com. Plus, now you can support Discovering Trek and the Trek Geeks network of podcasts, which soon will include JLP Live, hosted by the lovely and talented Barry DeFord, by subscribing to bonus content via Patreon. Get access to our exclusive carpool conversations, see the first of our annual supporters pins, and check out our exclusive Podfleet t-shirt design, along with so many other perks. Yeah, and speaking of Patreon, Bill, we want to take a moment to uh, recognize the following amazing producers of Discovering Trek. We are so thankful for their support. Ken Tripp, Casey Shafsky, Jackie and Chris Hackney, Lionel Marchand, Craig Ewing, Sean O'Holloran, Chris Trebuzio, Eric Extreme, Norman Lau, Mike Bovia, and Patrick Escudero. Thank you so much for all of your support, guys. We really, really appreciate it. 
Now, if you would like to become a producer of Discovering Trek or even get access to the raw audio of Discovering Trek episodes, head on over to patreon.com slash trekgeeks. Well, Barry, we can't thank you enough for coming back on over here to Discovering Trek to talk about uh, this week's episode, uh, Something for Something. Um, I'm just going to leave it at that. Um, You know, we're so excited to have you on the podcast network. Uh, We can't wait to see what's coming down the line uh, with JLP Live uh, later this year. But for now, where can folks find you uh, online in the present day? Well, I am very excited too, gentlemen, and it's going to be fan freaking tastic. But for now, you can find me on Facebook just at Barry DeFord, and then on Twitter at uh, B J O R N D E F J O R D Bjorn DeFord, and through po- at Polytrex as well, where again you can uh, see Shashank and me talk about all things Trek through a political lens. Fantastic. Well, folks, that's it for us and our discussion for and a bowl for Caron. Did I get that right, guys? Is that close? Not even no, close. Go no. Ahead. All right. Great. Good, good, good. <laughs> Hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Let us know what you thought about the episode and about Discovering Trek as well. These stories are so Star Trek, and I, for one, feel that Discovery has really hit its stride, and we're going to be in for a lot more great storytelling in the coming weeks. We are just so humbled that you take time out of your busy schedules to listen to us talk about this amazing new chapter in the Star Trek universe, and we look forward to sitting down with you again next week to talk about Episode 5. Until then, here are some words of wisdom from Captain James T. Kirk. You know, the greatest danger facing us is ourselves and irrational fear of the unknown. There's no such thing as the unknown, only things temporarily hidden, temporarily not understood. And until next week, never stop discovering. Music for Discovering Trek is provided by Five Year Mission. They're writing one song for each episode of the original Star Trek. Download their music at fiveyearmission.net. Discovering Trek, a Star Trek Discovery Companion, is a production of Trek Geeks, executive producer Dan Davidson. For even more Star Trek discussion, check out the Trek Geeks podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and trekgeeks.com.